morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to you. What have I done to this thing? Hey, I got it on this week, but now I'm making noises. So um, if you've got a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, I'd ask you to open it up to Jonah chapter 2. We're going to continue on in our study of the minor prophet Jonah. We started last week through what will be a four-week study in this book. And if you remember, I told you that for most of us, our understanding of Jonah is limited to essentially the children's storybook Bible version. This is a story that we are primarily familiar with either from vacation Bible school or children's Sunday school, something along those lines where we have been exposed to sort of the kids' version of the prophet Jonah. But I also told you that for over the last 1,500 years, the Jewish people have not treated this as a children's story, and so neither should we. See, the Jews every year on their highest, holiest day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, read the entire book of Jonah, and at the end of that reading, the congregation responds to the rabbi, we are Jonah. It's this communal repentance, communal confession that they are guilty of the sin of Jonah. Last week, we encountered Jonah in the boat. We saw that Jonah was actually a good man, even a godly man, with one particular sin issue that he refused to turn over to the lordship of God, namely his ethnic pride in his Jewishness. We also saw that Nineveh was the epitome of evil in Jonah's day and time. Not only were they the epitome of evil, they were the primary enemy of God's Sounds like it's. Is that better, Doug? Should I just stop touching it? I'm sorry. Uh, Not only were they the epitome of evil, Nineveh was the primary enemy of God's people in that day and time. By way of application, we saw that God called people to go to difficult, even dangerous places and people specifically because they are dangerous and evil. That was the call on Jonah's life that the evil of Nineveh had come up before God and directly because of that, God called Jonah to go. We also saw that we, we all have this sin of Jonah. We asked the question, what sin in our own lives are we hiding or of Christ? And finally, we ask, who are you? What defines your identity, who you are in the community? Are you primarily identified by your by your children? Or do you find your identity yourself as a I'm the hit part, not the run part. (laughs) I'm good with the hit, not so good with the run. Chris can do the run part. So this week we're going to find Jonah in the belly of the fish. It's here in this belly that Jonah's going to give us a beautiful picture of repentance. And along with that, along with this picture of repentance, we're going to see what brings us to the place of repentance 
and what that repentance looks like in action. How does it look to walk forward in repentance? And as we do that, I hope this week, just like last week, we continue to see how we are Jonah, how intensely practical and relatable this this minor prophet is to us as 21st century American Christians. So with all that said, hopefully you are in Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to ask you to look up one verse to Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. I told you last week we'll actually start right there. So this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to gather with your people around your word. Father, we thank you that your spirit is here with us. And we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that can understand the truth of your word. And Father, that you would use it, that you would wield it in this place to do the work that you desire to do in our lives, bringing conviction of sin, bringing us to a place of repentance, causing us to follow more dearly and closely after Christ. Do it all, Lord, for our good and for the glory of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. So we're going to start right there with the end of chapter 1 as it bridges into chapter 2, sort of setting the scene. And, and right off of the bat, we, we see that God appoints this great fish to swallow Jonah, and we encounter the age-old question. Was it a fish or a whale? Or, or what kind of fish or whale was it, maybe is the more particular question that some of you are wrestling with. Scholars are all over the place on this. There are a few things that I can tell you definitively. In fact, last night as we had family worship at our house, I was telling the kids they needed to lean in. And right at the very beginning, I was going to talk to them about what kind of fish it was. So here you go. The Hebrew word that is used here in this passage is dag. Dag. It doesn't show up anywhere else. All we can say for certain that is that it's not a whale because that's not the Hebrew word for whale. According to the scholars, I don't know Hebrew, but those smarter than me have said, we know it's not a whale. They chose the word fish, not because they know that it's a fish, but because they know it's some sort of sea creature that isn't a whale. Then some people begin to ask, well, if that's all we know, how how can we believe the story of Jonah is true? I mean, we don't know 
if the girth of the throat of the fish was big enough for a man to pass through. We don't know if the belly of the fish was big enough for a man to live in for three days. What about the chemistry of the gastric juices, like whether or not this man could survive in there for three days? Pressing questions. It's rather funny to watch biblical commentators like Warren Wiersbe try to put on their National Geographic hats and answer these questions cross-sections of fish, diagrams, writing out the chemistry of these digestive juices. But I'm confident they're missing the point. If you struggle to accept that Jonah's story is true on the basis that we don't have the, the Latin name of the species of fish that swallowed him, I am confident that you are choking, pun intended, choking on the resurrection of Christ. Because here's the deal, it doesn't matter if we understand what kind of fish was involved or not, because we know what kind of God was involved. And it, we, we can have confidence in the veracity of this story, not because we have like species and phylum of what, whatever kind of fish, but because we know that the fish was appointed by God. The point is not to figure out scientifically how this happened. If you try to figure out the resurrection scientifically, your inquiry will fail. Because dead people don't walk out of the grave scientifically. But they do miraculously. And just as we see Christ walk forth from the grave, just as Christ called Lazarus out of the grave four days dead, we're going to see a man in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, and we can have full confidence that this story is 100% true because, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. There are two implications from these two verses that we must understand. First, God has sovereign authority to intervene in our lives. God has sovereign authority to intervene in our lives. In chapter 1 alone, we saw God hurl a storm onto the sea. We saw God control the casting of lots, some game of chance, so that it landed on Jonah. And then we saw God calm the sea. Clear interventions into human, natural history in a way that was clearly supernatural. God has sovereign authority to intervene in our lives. And as Jonah sank down into the sea, here again we see God appointing a fish to swallow him whole. God is actively, personally pursuing his prophet and by implication his people through the exercise of his sovereign authority in the world. It's not like God created the heavens and the earth, and then made the biggest batch of popcorn you've ever seen, sat back and started to watch the drama of the human race unfold on universal Netflix. God is intimately, particularly involved in the details of our lives. He calls forth the stars by name. It is God who tells the sun when to rise in the morning and when to set in the evening. God feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field and if right now a storm is chasing you across the sea of your life and into the belly of a fish, it is God that is doing it. God has sovereign authority over everything. And he is intimately involved in the everyday aspects of our life. And that truth is terrifying if it comes alone. But it does not come alone. Truth number two that springs from this text God intervenes sovereignly in our lives because of his love for us. God didn't appoint the fish and think to himself, well, that'll show Jonah. He'll think twice before he crosses me again. One commentator said it this way. He said, the fish 
was not a torture chamber, it was a lifeboat. Another preacher I heard preach on this message or on this text one time, he, he said that that God didn't put Jonah there in the belly of the fish to pay him back. He put Jonah there to bring him back. God's purposes in pursuing his prophet were love. See the limitless nature of God's loving pursuit of Jonah just in chapter one. Jonah ran as far as he could, literally to the coast. When he ran out of land, he sailed as far as he could until the storm threatened to break up the ship. And whenever he was thrown overboard, he sank as far as he could. He describes it even as to the roots of the mountains until the fish swallowed him. See God's relentless pursuit of his rebellious child. He intervened and saved Jonah every single time. But make no mistake... The belly of the fish was not a pleasant place to be, nor was that storm on that ship. Brothers and sisters, discipline from the Lord is not punitive. It is merciful, gracious, and corrective, but that does not mean that it is pleasant. Consider the words of Hebrews chapter 12, chapter 12 verses 5 and 6. They should be on the screen. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In another place, Paul in Romans chapter 2 is talking about how it is the goodness, the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. And I would submit to you that oftentimes in our life, that kindness of God looks like parental discipline of his children. It's tough love sometimes that is necessary to break us. God's discipline is intended to break us and bring us to the end of ourselves and show us our desperate need for him. So in the moment, that will feel like punishment. But make no mistake, it can't be punishment because God's punishment for our sin has already been placed on Christ. For those of us who have repented of our sins, put our trusting faith in Jesus to save us, when you go through life's hardship, even hardship that's the direct result of your own sin, it is not God's wrath. It is God's discipline, his loving care for his children to bring them to a place of repentance and restoration, reconciliation with him anew and afresh. One other thing that I want to make sure is abundantly clear God does not just sovereignly intervene in the lives of people like Jonah, his own children or people. God is not only active in the life of believers. If you are here this morning and you haven't yet repented of your sin and put your trusting faith in Christ, your presence in this room is evidence of God's sovereign mercy and grace in your life. Consider how Paul describes this in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
So ponder this with me for a second. If you are a non-Christian in this room this morning, you are only here by the sovereign grace of a God that you do not worship, that you do not respect as Lord. God in his infinite mercy and grace has chosen to so ordain and establish the days of your lives and the address that you live at and the steps that you've taken this morning so that you are in this room to hear this sermon. And that may sound arrogant to you, but I want to be abundantly clear. I'm not saying that God has sovereignly ordained everything in your life so that you can hear me, because that would be false. I'm saying God has sovereignly ordained the steps of your life so that you would encounter this, the word of the Lord, because this is the foundation of our lives. And so if you have not yet trusted in Christ, repented of your sins, and put your faith in him, God, in his mercy and grace, has blazed a trail for you to sit where you're sitting right now and hear this. And I pray, pray that you would hear it. Hear it with ears that are spiritually sensitive. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ today. The application for us in this room is that God is sovereign and good. Even in our difficult circumstances, God is always at work in good and bad circumstances for our eternal good. In the life of the believer, it is his hand of discipline, like what we see in the life of Jonah. And in the life of an unbeliever, it is his hand of mercy, beckoning you, drawing you, calling you to himself. But make no mistake, God is not a distant God. He is intimately involved in the details of our life. So when God invades Jonah's life in this way, when Jonah's been miraculously saved by God appointing the fish to do the impossible and swallow him up and not digest him, how do we see Jonah respond? When, when does Jonah begin repenting? Was it when his body hit the waves and at the moment he hit the waves, the waves went still? I mean, that's clearly a miracle that warranted a response. What about when Jonah is sinking into the depths and he sees this huge fish come toward him with his mouth open? At a minimum, you would expect Jonah in that moment to cry out in some sort of fearful desperation to be delivered from a horrible death. It seems, though, as you look at the text, that this isn't necessarily what we get from Jonah. We read verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then the first word of of chapter 2, verse 1 is what? Then. Then the implication is that the prayer that is set forth in chapter 2 does not come to us until after Jonah has spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Now, to be clear, as you look at the text of Jonah's prayer, there are multiple things in there that are past tense describing when he called out to the Lord in his moment of desperation as his life was fainting away from him. met with some brothers this week who looked at this text with me and, and felt like gave very clear understanding that Jonah prayed at some level as he was sinking into the depths. He prayed, he called out to God for deliverance, for salvation, for rescue. But I believe it was the desperate cry for deliverance, not the humble prayer of repentance. And it's only as he wakes up in the belly of the fish and decompresses over the next three days and three nights that Jonah finally reaches where we find him in verse 1 this broken place where he is finally ready to repent of his sin. So what did Jonah do for those first three days and three nights? Well, the text does not tell us, 
but I don't think it would be outrageous for me to tell you that he probably groaned and moaned a whole lot about his circumstances, just like we would. Chris just got done preaching through a series on Elijah, and you'll remember that text in James where James says that Elijah was a man like us with a nature like ours, and we read the stories of Elijah's life, and we are amazed that James would say, man, Elijah is a man like us with a nature like ours. James didn't write, Jonah was a man like us with a nature like ours. And I submit to you that he was, but James didn't write it because he didn't have to. We can all relate on a personal level. If you are honest with yourself, you know you are Jonah. I am Jonah. We are Jonah. We, we are a people who want to serve the Lord but who struggle with besetting sins. And we need God in his grace and his mercy to discipline us and to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will repent and follow after him and serve him with our whole hearts. Jonah is a man like us with a nature like ours. And that should cause us to look closely at Jonah's prayer. At the end of verse one, just quickly, I want you to note this. We see that Jonah begins to finally pray And he prays to the Lord, his God. The Lord, his God. The Lord was already Jonah's God before he prays this prayer of repentance in the belly of the fish. Last week, we noted that the overwhelming biblical record tells us that Jonah was actually a good man, a godly man, with this one sin problem that he had not reckoned with. The reason that this matters for us is because we can identify with that Jonah. When we treat Jonah like the reprobate prophet who just got it all wrong, we throw stones, but we don't learn anything. But when we see ourselves as Jonah, we position ourselves to learn from his life and his experience, and particularly today, his prayer of repentance. So when Jonah cries out to the Lord, his God, it's just further affirmation. Jonah knew the Lord already. And what we learn from that as Christians is that repentance is not a one-and-done sort of thing. It is a daily, ongoing lifestyle of turning from sin and trusting in Christ anew and afresh every single day. That's what we are called to as believers. So, we arrive at verse 2 and we begin our study of Jonah's prayer. In verse 2, we see a surprising fact. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. And the tone of Jonah's prayer is surprisingly happy that God answered him. I think this is ironic. If you remember last week, Jonah's statement was, I'd rather be in Tarshish without God than in Nineveh with God. This week, we find a changed man. Jonah would rather be in the belly of the fish with God than anywhere else without him. Jonah's heart has changed. Not Fundamentally, not foundationally, we're going to see that as we work our way through this text and the rest of the book. But at some level, we see a changed man here. In verses 3 through 8, we we lay out really the meat of Jonah's prayer. And I want you to get, as we work our way through this, here are three foundations of biblical repentance. Three foundations of biblical repentance that we see in verses 3 through 8. True repentance can only come when you realize, when you come to terms with, number one, the hopelessness of life without God, 
Number two, the vanity of idols. We'll unpack that a little more. And then number three, the soul sufficiency of God's grace. So number one, the true repentance can only come when you realize the hopelessness of life without God. This comes from Jonah's description of his circumstances and his condition in verses 3 through 7. Here's just a sampling of some of the things Jonah has to say about his situation before God when he had not yet repented. I was distressed. I was in the belly of Sheol, a, a Hebrew word for the land of the dead, this imagery of the hopelessness of the grave. You, O God, cast me into the deep, in the heart of the seas, with the flood and the waves and the billows overwhelming me. No human being can survive that. I am driven from your sight. Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, but now in his desperate circumstances, he realizes that the presence of the Lord is the only place he desires to be, and yet he's driven from it. Waters closed in to take my life. The deep surrounded me on all sides. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This picture of Sheol, the land of the dead, from which no human being can escape. Note how this continues Jonah's journey down. He went down, verse 6, went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He went down to Joppa to flee the presence of the Lord, went down into a boat, later goes down deeper into that boat to sleep. And in that moment of desperation for the sailors, Jonah finds himself headed down into the waters, ultimately down to the roots of the mountain. Every step that Jonah took in his own strength was away from the Lord. He had nothing to offer to pursue God in and of himself. See and feel the hopelessness of life from, of, apart from God. Jonah is expressing the weight he feels because of his self-imposed separation from God. And, and the same is true for us. The same is true for every single person who's walking apart from the Lord, either the unredeemed person or the believer who is not walking in obedience to the Lord today. So I pray that, that God would prick our hearts and cause us to consider our hopelessness apart from him and use that hopelessness to till the soil of our hearts and soften our hearts for the truth of his word. True repentance can only come first when you realize the hopelessness of life without God. Number two, true repentance can only come when you realize the vanity of idols. The vanity of idols. Look again at verse eight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Here, Jonah juxtaposes the only two options that exist in the world for worship. Now, the presupposition is that we all worship. Jonah knows, and we all know this to be true of ourselves, every human being is a worshiper by nature. And so the question is not if you worship, the question is simply what you worship. And here Jonah tells us the two options are either vain idols or the giver of steadfast love. For many they go after idols, and so we'll start here. Images of people bowing down to pieces of metal or rock are probably what come to your mind first. But I submit to you that the idolatry of our day and age is much more subtle than that. Idolatry happens when we take anything 
and put it where only God belongs. An idol is anything you love more than God, trust more than God, or desire more than God. And if those are a little too abstract, let me give you some concrete examples of how this plays out in our lives, and you can understand how idolatry is rampant. Maybe what matters most to you is your career. You love your job, or at least you love the respect and the income that it brings you. You feel comfortable and confident that everything is going to be all right in this life because you have a good job and and you can take care of your family and you can save for the future. When everything feels stressful with drama at home or busy schedules with kids or, or whatever stresses you out, you long, need, and desire the office and the stability and the predictability of the work week where you have control and you know what you're doing. Your job is your idol. For others of us, it's our children. You can't imagine what life would be like without your kids. Your life, your schedule, your very identity is wrapped up in your children and their unnecessarily busy lives. You want your sons to be the best baseball players that have ever lived. And you want your daughters to be the most accomplished musicians the world has ever seen. And you will do anything, spend anything, go anywhere, sacrifice anything at any cost to ensure that those things happen. Because your very identity is wrapped up in the success of your children. Your children are your idol. In reality, for most of us, regardless of what the particular item is... I think our true idol is our own reputation. We may say our biggest priority is our career success or our children's success. You may even say your biggest priority is your growth in your Christian faith. But what we really care about is what everybody else thinks of us. The main thing I'm worried about is how many likes I get on Facebook. Whatever the category of life, whatever we really want to be respected in or revered in or even envied about, We will do whatever it takes to get there. Even posting exaggerated stories and filtered photos of your life on Instagram. When our reputation is good, we are riding high and proudly boasting in it. And when our reputation takes a hit, we will do anything, sacrifice anything to gain it back. When you really boil this one down, your idol is yourself. We spend our lives trying to glorify ourselves when our lives are supposed to be spent glorifying God. No matter what you choose, Jonah rightly testifies that these idols are vain, empty, useless, worthless. And these worthless idols cannot do anything to satisfy the true thirst of your soul, which is reconciliation with God. Why were Jonah's circumstances as he plunged into the depth? Depth hopeless because his relationship with the Lord was broken. He knew that he had run from God and now he finds himself on death's doorstep broken in this fellowship, in this relationship with God and so he desperately wants restoration. And no matter what you choose, if it is anything other than God himself and his grace and mercy, it's vain, it's empty and it will never save you or satisfy you. Number three, true repentance can only come when you realize the sole sufficiency of God's grace alone. And at the end of verse eight, as this juxtaposition is rounded out, 
Jonah compares these vain idols to steadfast love. He says that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is this Old Testament concept of God's covenantal love, his unique love for the nation of Israel. And if you know the story of the nation of Israel, this is not merited, deserved love. This is love premised and based on God's promise and covenant with them. He loves them unconditionally and covenants to always love them because of his own character. Ultimately, our understanding of God's chesed comes into the New Testament in terms of God's cheres, the Greek word for grace. God's grace whereby he shows special love, undeserved, unmerited favor toward his people. Hoping in God's grace is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. It is the only way to truly worship God. Look with me, if you will, at at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It'll be on the screen. And we get the perfect New Testament definition of what this grace is. And you were dead. Sound familiar? Jonah on death's doorstep, we were spiritually dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then the two greatest words in all of Scripture, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul can't even contain himself. He breaks out, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are here on any occasion, this phrase will be familiar to you. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. Small group Bible study this morning, we saw that heaven and earth will pass away, but that God's word is eternal. It alone can ultimately be trusted. And who is the word of God made flesh? Christ himself. When we as New Testament people go after anything else or try to find our soul's satisfaction or our reconciliation with God in anything other than God's grace, we are paying regard to vain idols and forsaking our hope that's only found in God's steadfast love. True repentance can only come when we first realize our hopeless condition in our sin. Second, when we recognize our inability to, real, to trust in anything other than God's grace to fix our hopeless condition. Don't pay regard to vain idols. And third, when we realize the sole sufficiency of God's grace to save us. And so those verses bring Jonah and us to verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Some scholars will tell you that this is possibly the most important book or most important letter, most important verse. It will come. Most important verse in the book of Jonah. In fact, one scholar went so far as to say this is the most important verse in all of Scripture. The most important verse in all of Scripture. So it takes it makes sense. We should spend a moment here. First, Jonah reveals to us the two elements of true repentance. Two elements of true repentance. Changed attitude, changed action. So as far as changed attitude goes, we find Jonah in verse 9 to be speaking with a voice of thanksgiving. Before, Jonah begrudged God his rightful place of sovereign authority over his life, so much so that he was willing to run away at whatever cost to get out from underneath it. Now, Jonah is thankful that God has intervened in his life and saved him by his sovereign goodness. Jonah's attitude is now one of gratitude. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that Jonah doesn't have this perfect just yet. His, his attitude, as we'll see over in chapter 4, is not fully one of submission to the Lord and gratitude. But for today's purposes, what I want you to see is that I believe Jonah's repentance here is genuine, but incomplete. Genuine, but incomplete. What I mean by that is I believe that Jonah genuinely repents of what he understood his sin to be, specifically running away from God. But it's not until God specifically teaches Jonah there at the end of chapter 4 about his ethnic pride that Jonah even realizes that was a sin. So Jonah repents of running from the Lord, and that's all he understood his sin to be at this point. And so because of that, I believe that his repentance is genuine but incomplete, and we see a changed man here, a man with a changed attitude, an attitude of gratitude. Secondarily, we see changed actions. Specifically here in verse 9, Jonah makes promises that he will sacrifice and vow, pay what he has vowed. Before, Jonah rebelled against his God-given mandate to go to Nineveh and to preach the gospel and ran in the opposite direction. Now we see Jonah not only ready to obey, but specifically in these deeds that he's going to carry out in chapter 3. What I have vowed, that I'll be your prophet, I will pay, I will go to Nineveh. Compare this with the experience of the pagan sailors from last week we see in verse 16. Then then the men, the sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These words parallel here at the end of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 2, and they tell us that Jonah's repentance was just as genuine and complete as the changed lives of the pagan sailors. So the application for us is that true repentance involves both changed attitudes and changed actions. And here's kind of some summary statements to think about what that looks like. So if you have a right attitude and right actions, your statement will look something like this. I'm so grateful that God has saved me by his grace that I want to live my life in obedience to him. Right attitude, right actions. We need to be aware of the common false repentance and false versions of this that we see. You can have the right attitude with the wrong actions. I am so God, so glad that God saves by his grace alone and not by works so that I can live however I want to. This is not repentance, it is licentiousness. 
or others who have the right actions with the wrong attitude. I will do what God says to because he's God, but I'm not going to like it. This is legalism, not true repentance. And some would argue this is where Jonah lands at this point in his story, but I believe that that's a misunderstanding of his own personal understanding because uh, I'll save it for chapter 4. Just hang on to that. Come to chapter 4 in a couple weeks. We'll see how the story finishes out. Then comes this key phrase that scholars latch on to when they say this is possibly the most important verse in all of the Bible. Right there at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the theme of the book of Jonah and possibly the theme of all of Scripture. We see this phrase show up again in Revelation chapter 7, the song that we are going to sing for all of eternity. It'll be on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 7, verse 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. What are the words of their song? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know if you've heard sermon series preached on the book of Jonah before, but I would like to debunk a few myths. The book of Jonah is not about praying harder when your circumstances get difficult. And the book of Jonah is not about a survival guide for the storms of this life. The book of Jonah is about that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's salvation belongs to the Lord. The pagan sailor's salvation belonged to the Lord. And we are going to see in the next few weeks that the Ninevites' salvation belongs to the Lord. So by implication, every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is His work from beginning to end. In verse 10, we see that God relents. God responds to the the repentance that Jonah puts on display here. And again, we see God's sovereign hand intervening in human history in a supernatural way. He causes the fish to vomit Jonah up onto the dry land. Like we did last week, we're going to leave further consideration of the last verse of this chapter until next week because it really launches us into the next scene. So for this week, there are three points of application I want to remind you of that we've encountered as we've walked through chapter 2, and then we'll be done. Number one, God is sovereign and good, even in our difficult circumstances. God is always working in good circumstances and in bad circumstances for our good. And this is true both for the lost and the found. For the lost, for the unbeliever in the room, God has sovereignly intervened in your life to define your days and your boundaries of your living place, your address, and the steps of your life to bring you here today to hear this message of God's grace. You who pay no regard to the God of the Bible are being summoned by the God of all creation to repent and believe. And for believers, God intervenes in our life in discipline and correction to further conform us to the image of Christ. We are Jonah, and we need the Lord to come after us. So be thankful that he does. Number two, true repentance can only come when we realize our hopeless condition and our sin, our inability to trust in anything other than God's grace to fix 
our hopeless condition and the sole sufficiency of God's grace alone to save us. So this afternoon, I want you to take some time and think about these things. Consider these things. What would your life look like without God's grace? Where would you be if God had not saved you? I understand that's mere conjecture, but we all know the trajectory of our lives before we came to faith in Christ. So take yourself back to that last day of your life before he saved you and try to chart your course. Where would you be in your own strength and the hopelessness of your sin? Then consider what else in your life are you prone to trust in, even today find your identity in, other than God's grace? What do you rely on to to save you, to provide for you? And finally, just just revel and celebrate God's grace and the salvation that he has brought in your life if you know him. And then third and finally, true repentance involves both a changed attitude and changed actions. We find the Jonah in the belly is not the same man that was Jonah on the boat. His attitude now is an attitude of gratitude and his actions are actions of obedience. And so... Here in a minute, when we call for a time of response, I'm going to call for people to repent of sin. And that repentance has to look like both a changed attitude, a changed perspective on your life, and actions of obedience, walking forward, pursuing Christ. Turning away from sin and turning toward him in faith and trust. So let's stand together. I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we are Jonah. God, please forgive us for the ways that in our lives we have sinned like Jonah. We thank you that that when we have turned our back on you and we have fled your commands and your presence, you have graciously pursued us and come after us. You sovereignly rule and reign over everything on this planet and you are intimately involved in every aspect of our lives and you do it because of your love. You, you intervene in our lives to discipline us, to correct us, to bring us back into right fellowship with you, to bring us to the end of ourselves and to that place of repentance. For those here today who have never turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, you have sovereignly ordained the steps of their lives, the days they've lived, to have them in this room this morning, that they might seek you and might even find you, for you are not far from us, God. We thank you that you are not a distant God, that you are intimately involved in our lives. Lord, as we walk in repentance toward you, help us to have both changed attitudes and changed actions. Cause us to walk in true repentance in our pursuit of Christ, that we would live for the glory of your name. Father, do all of this for our eternal good and for the advancement of your kingdom to the praise of your name. We pray it in Christ's name.